even the most attentive driver will occasionally fail to observe an important road name or landmark as they travel around. And very often, even the best of drivers will head in the wrong direction. If you use a GPS, you will invariably hear the pesky voice that says, recalculating, recalculating. And somewhere along, you will hear another voice saying, make a legal U-turn. And it probably says it about three or four times because it knows that we aren't all very bright. You and I may make U-turns and do so without much difficulty and without much consequence. But whereas it might be legitimate and inconsequential to make U-turns on our roads, it is also altogether different to make a spiritual U-turn. In fact, the book of Hebrews is, in a sense, one great warning that Christians are never to make a spiritual U-turn, never to head back in the direction from which they have come. In chapter 5, verse 11 to chapter 6, verse 3, in order to encourage us not to turn back, to make a spiritual U-turn, he tells the believers that they are to advance and to go on in Christian maturity. That they are not to remain with the ABCs of the gospel, the fundamental truths of the gospel, but they are to go on to maturity, that is to absorb the whole panoply, the breadth and the depth of God's revelation given in Jesus Christ. But in chapter 6, and particularly in verses 4 to 6, there is this warning, a warning against apostasy. That's where we're going to anchor our deliberations today. There's a warning not to apostatize, not to make a spiritual U-turn. This passage is one of the most debated passages in the New Testament. I don't even say in the book of Hebrews. It's one of the most debated texts in the entire Bible. It is often not the favorite text of pastors. Many of us would like to jump over it, but when you go through the scriptures, you must address the texts that are before you because this too is part of the word of God. Just one more preliminary remark. We need to understand that though this is a warning and a very sobering warning, it is part of the, the, the broader canvas that you find in Hebrews where warning is part of the woof and the warp of the book of Hebrews. That is, the, the writer warns believers at important intervals. You will find in chapter 2, for instance, where he warns them in verses 1 to 4 not to let the truth slip away. In chapter 3, verse 7 to 19, they should not harden their hearts against the Holy Spirit. And here in verses 4 to 8, there is this warning against apostasy. 
And so that's what I want to do. I want to begin first by looking at this warning against the irretrievable state of apostasy. In verse 4, Hebrews 4, verse, in chapter 6, verse 4, the writer says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. In terms of the syntactical relationship in these verses, and by the way, let's be clear that verses 4 to 6 is one sentence in the original. Here you have in chapter 1, in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Therefore, leaving the elementary principles, let us go on to maturity. That's the command. That's the major command in that few verses, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6. He's saying, let us go on to maturity. Now in verse 4, we see the conjunction for. And what he's doing here is now explaining why believers must go on to maturity. For it is impossible to renew those who have fallen away. That's the reason. The reason he wants them not to linger in immaturity, but to press on to maturity, is that it is impossible to renew those who have fallen away, or those who fall away. This verb that you find in verse 6, to translated fall away, is the term that denotes apostasy. And it literally means to fail to follow through on a commitment. The theme then of apostasy is central in verses 4 to 8, to fall away. Now this verb teaches us an important truth, in fact several truths about the nature of apostasy. First of all, he said it is impossible to renew those who have fallen away to repentance. They cannot go back, they cannot repent. They, there is no way back for them from apostasy. And so the question then is, what is apostasy? Perhaps D.A. Carson provides the best description of apostasy that I have yet seen. It is clearly apostasy the most egregious and the most serious of sins. In fact, it is quite similar to the sin of blasphemy. And blasphemy does not merely refer to saying terrible things about the Holy Spirit, though I would not exclude that. But blasphemy is essentially to resist and to repeatedly resist and permanently resist the work of the Holy Spirit as he calls one to salvation. Apostasy is, first of all, the most serious of sins. Carson defines it, and I think correctly, that apostasy is the decisive turning away from a religious position once held. In fact, it seems that every word here is important. It is the decisive turning away from a religious position that a person formerly held. In this sense, Apostasy must be seen 
as different from ordinary unbelief. Because this is a falling away, a turning away from a position of ostensibly belief. Apostasy differs not only from mere unbelief. It differs from backsliding. It is possible for a genuine Christian to backslide, to go back to live the way that he or she previously lived when they were in sin. But the scriptures understand backsliding as a temporary defection from Christ. Apostasy is not a temporary defection. It is a permanent, it is a decisive, it is a calculated rejection of a former religious position. And this defection must not then be seen as a mere changing of one's mind on some minor religious point. It is a calculated, decisive, and irrevocable rejection of an entire religious position that is the gospel. The writer tells them, you must go on to maturity, for it is impossible to renew those to repentance who fall away, who fall away, who decisively turn away. And so apostasy must be seen as a deliberate and calculated and permanent rejection of the faith one formerly professed. There is absolutely no recovery. You notice the verse in verse 6, he says, if they fall away, they cannot be re renewed. In verse 4, it is impossible. Not that there's anything impossible for God, but that God himself will not renew them, those who turn away from their former religious commitment to Jesus Christ. This is a deliberate rejection. And the, pa and, and the pastor, who, the one who writes this epistle, provides two reasons why it is impossible for them to renew to repentance, for them to return and repent and be readmitted into the Christian faith. He says this in verse 6. He says, it is impossible to renew them. Here's the first reason. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God. They crucify Christ again. Well, what does it mean that they crucify Christ? Well, what he's saying is that this decisive rejection of the gospel tantamounts, equates to a rejection of Christ on the cross. Here is a man or woman who once professed to be a Christian, who once attended worship, who prayed to God, who reveled in the cross and thanked God for the cross of Christ by which our sins are forgiven. But now he turns away, he abandons Christ. He says, I no longer believe in Christ. I no longer believe in the work of the cross. The Bible now sees him as an enemy of the cross and one who is in league with those who killed the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is as though he is putting Christ to death again. He is re-crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ. He also gives a second reason. Not only do they crucify Christ afresh in verse 6, he says, and put him to an open shame. The cross was an instrument not only of torture, but of humiliation. And those who turn away from Christ, not only do they reject his sacrifice, they now open the Lord Jesus Christ to ridicule. They dishonor him. They are saying that the death of Christ is of no value, that he died and he deserved to die. 
And this rejection of Christ is at the heart of why there is no repentance for those who apostatize, who abandon the faith. It is because it is only in Christ, it is only in drawing near to Christ and receiving his death that one is forgiven and one is saved. One can never be saved by a rejection of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Apostasy. It is a decisive rejection of a religious position that one formerly firmly held. The passage then tells us the nature. You can't come back. There is no coming back from this position. But notice that the passage also defines those who are warned against apostasy. He said it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. He describes the people to whom he speaks with five distinguishing characteristics. He says first they were once enlightened. And what does it mean that they were enlightened? Well, it means that at some point they had come to perceive true knowledge of Jesus Christ. They had heard the gospel. They had perceived and understood its message. Secondly, he describes them as those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Three times in these verses, he will say they have tasted. They had tasted the heavenly gift. And what is the heavenly gift? Well, we believe it refers to salvation. Now, the term taste often refers to sipping something. You know, you taste um, a Coke. Well, it means that you don't imbibe all of it. You take a little portion of it. Now, he describes these as those who have tasted the heavenly gift, the gift of salvation. But here in Hebrews, the verb to taste does not mean to take a little sip. And one of the ways you know that is by comparing how the same word is used elsewhere in the same book. And the writer uses this term of Jesus in chapter 2 verse 9. It says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death and crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Same word. Now, you would agree with me that when Jesus is said to have tasted death, it did not mean, it does not mean that he took a little sip of death, but it meant he experienced death completely. And that is what it means here in chapter 6, where the writer says that these have tasted the heavenly gift. They had totally and completely experienced this gift. They didn't just taste a little bit of it. They have tasted it, or they had a complete experience of this salvation. The second characteristics of those to whom he writes and warns against apostasy is not only that they have tasted the heavenly gift, he says, and have become partakers of the Holy Ghost, of the Holy Spirit. They have received the inward work of the Spirit of God. The Bible is clear that he who does not have the Spirit of God is none of his. But these, not only have they tasted the heavenly gift, they have become partakers, they have become sharers in the Holy Spirit. And then he says further, fourth, that they have tasted the good word of God. That is, they had come to receive the gospel, the good word of God in all of its truthfulness, 
and in all of its sweetness. We see the fifth characteristic of these to whom he writes and warns against apostasy. Not only are these who were once enlightened, not only did they taste the heavenly gift and became partakers of the Holy Spirit, not only did they taste the good word of God, the gospel, but they have tasted, he says, the powers of the age to come. They have known something of the miraculous work of God in their lives. These are people for whom it seems that the end has drawn nigh that the Spirit of God who will work in the eschaton, who will work when Christ returns, has begun to work amongst them and they have tasted the powers. They have tasted the powers of the age to come. The Spirit of God already beginning to work among them. It is right here in trying to define who these are that we run into the first difficulty. Who are these that he warns against apostasy? Who are these who have... He said, been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift. Who are these that he describes as those who are partakers of the Spirit and uh, tasted the good word of God and tasted the powers of the age to come? There are three schools of thought, and I want to briefly list them. First of all, there is a school of thought that says that these who are warned and are described here, these who are experiencing salvation, refer to genuine Christians who could lose their salvation. So he's warning the genuine Christians, you can lose your salvation. This is what is known as the Arminian view. I think, however, that that is a very hard position to defend for the very simple reason that Scripture itself teach over and over that God protects and preserves those who are saved. There is a doctrine of eternal preservation, that, that those who are genuinely saved are protected from falling away. And so I would rule out this as a possible interpretation. There's a second interpretation that says, a second school of thought that says these are real believers, but they cannot commit apostasy. So the warning is just given to encourage them to run this Christian race. And this view is called the hypothetical view. That is, the writer warns them against apostasy, knowing that they're not going to fall away, but he warns them so that they can run the Christian race. The problem with this view, though one can have sympathy for it, is that it neuters the warning of its power. They can't fall away, and therefore the question is why, why is there a warning given to them? And then there's a third position that says these are false Christians who are being warned not to fall away. But that surely does not make sense because they were never in. They can't fall away from something if they're not in it. The position I want to elaborate upon will take a little bit from a couple of these positions and nuance them, the false Christian view particularly. Before I try to explain who these are and I think there are two interpretive principles that we must bear in mind when we read a text like this. First of all, at the most basic level, the writer writes not a treatise on apostasy. This is not an abstract discussion about whether there are some people who are saved and they can lose their salvation or not. This is not an academic treaty written, treatise written on the subject of falling away or apostasy. This is written 
to real people in a real historical context. What the writer of Hebrews sees are these people who have come to a crossroad in their faith. They had been serving the Lord for years, but now they were suffering for their faith. Their properties were being confiscated. They were being hounded. And they had come to a place where they begin to weigh up their options. They were thinking, should we continue following the Lord Jesus Christ and attract undue attention and suffering? Or should we go back into the shelter of Judaism from which we have come, which is accepted in the Roman, at least in the Roman world? Judaism at that time was not being persecuted. Should we then go back into Judaism? It has a lot of pomp. It has a lot of glory. Should we find harbor and shelter under our former position in Judaism? They were at a crossroad. And it is to these people who were wavering in their minds, should we go on or should we go back? But the writer says, be very careful because if you go back, there is no way back. Real people with a real crisis. Secondly, the writer describes these people phenomenologically. When we talk about phenomenon, we are talking about as they appear. What he's describing of these people is what they profess to be. Remember, he can't really read the hearts of people. This is what they profess to be. And so I would argue that he's writing to professing Christians, professing believers, people who show all the signs of salvation. Now, how then do we get around this impasse? If they are genuine Christians, why does he warn them, since they cannot lose their salvation? And here I think Carson is also very helpful, because he explains to us that when we think of salvation, we think of two categories of people, and these categories are real. We think of people who are in or those who are out, people who are saved and those who are unsaved. And really there is no more basic categories than that. You're either saved or you're unsaved. In, in its most basic form, that is true. And yet the New Testament seems to nuance that basic form by suggesting that there's a third category of people. There's a third category of people who have all the signs of faith, who do everything that Christians seemingly should do, but are not genuinely saved. There is this teaching in Scripture regarding false faith spurious faith, that there are people who appear to be Christian outwardly, seem to have tasted all the spiritual gifts of salvation, but are not at heart truly converted. And you might think that this is a minor theme in the scriptures, but I would suggest to you that it is a major teaching in the Bible, that if you go back to the Old Testament, you will find in the wilderness generation of people who all subscribe to the Shema. Every day when they got up, they recited the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. They were committing themselves to one God. And yet amongst these professing commitment to God and to the theocracy, these people, many of them, the Bible describes them as unbelievers, that they were characterized by unbelief in heart. Many of them were idolaters. Many of them turned away from the Lord and perished in the wilderness. Although they had all the signs of people committed to God. The New Testament carries on the same theme. The Apostle Paul, 
describes in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 19 two men who were part of the church in Ephesus, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who he said they have made shipwreck of the faith. Their Christianship has crashed on the rocks. They had abandoned the faith. These two men were singled out, we believe, because they were known people, leaders, prominent men in the church in Ephesus. They went to church as we did. They praised the Lord as we did. They sang the hymns. They prayed at home. They did everything that was spiritual and that you should do as a Christian. And yet he says these two men had made shipwreck of the faith. We have in the scriptures Paul saying of Demas, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas was a fellow missionary like the Apostle Paul, a companion of Paul. But he says, Demas has forsaken us, having loved this present world. Peter teaches us, at least in Acts 8, is a man called Simon Magus, Simon the Great. He was a sorcerer, a witch doctor. And the Bible says in Acts 8, 18 and following, that Simon Magnus believed. That's a tremendous statement. He believed and was baptized. He became a church member. But when he saw the apostles laying hands on people and they received the, 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 the Holy Spirit, Simon Magus went to the apostles and said, I want to buy the Holy Spirit. And Peter rebukes him. He says, you do not belong to God. He says, you are poisoned by bitterness and you are in the bounds of iniquity. You need to repent. So though he was baptized, though he believed, he had never been genuinely converted. You see, what the writer of Hebrews is saying to these who profess faith is not, please be careful, lest you turn back and lose salvation. He's not saying that. He's saying, please be careful you turn back and prove you never had salvation in the first place. I think that's a very important distinction. There's such a thing as spurious faith. If you want to see false faith, then you have to look at the clearest example in the scriptures who is Judas. He was in the inner circle with Jesus. Jesus had a large entourage of people who followed him. But he was among the twelve in the inner circle. He saw the miracles. He was with Jesus, and yet he turned away. Our Lord Jesus speaks of this matter of false faith in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you, practice, you who practice lawlessness in Matthew 7. Our Lord Jesus teaches about this matter of false faith, of spurious faith in the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, where we have four soils or four different responses. On the extreme, you have the sower who sows by the seed by the wayside and the bird comes and eats the seed, referring to those who hear the gospel and the devil snatches it away as soon as they receive it. On the other end of the extreme, the sower sows a seed on good ground and it produces 30 or 60 or 100 fold. These are those who respond to the word of God and produce fruit. But in the middle, in this parable, there are two who demonstrate false or spurious faith. First, those, the, the, the sower sows seeds on rocky ground. And because the ground is shallow, these seeds seemingly germinate 
But when the heat of the day comes, these seed and sprouting wither under the scorching sun. And these denote people who at initially joyfully receive the word of God, but later when they are faced with persecution, they wither away, they die away. They abandon the faith, they make a U-turn, they leave Christ. Similarly, the seed that fell among thorns refer to those who hear the gospel and thrive, it seemed, for a while. But the cares of the world and the love of riches choke the word so it becomes unfruitful. So the scriptures teach about this, this, this phenomenon of false faith, even amongst those who profess faith. Jesus could say that, could ask the question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He says, in the last day, the love of many will grow cold. And this is precisely what the writer is speaking about and addressing. He's saying, you must go on in the faith. You must press on. You must not go back because if you go back, you may, be, you may prove to be those who never had genuine faith in the first place. John, the apostle John says, they went out from us because they did not belong to us. There are people who were once a part of the community who left and abandoned the faith. And he says, they did not belong in the first place. There's a warning against apostasy. There's a warning about turning back. Not that you lose salvation, but that you prove you were never saved in the first place. In verses 7 and 8, there's an illustration of a well-watered field. Where the writer says, For the earth which drinks in the rain as often, that often comes upon it, and bears herb useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receive blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. And he's using this, this illustration of a well-watered field. He says, God sends blessings upon men. And those who produce fruit are blessed. But those whose lives produce thorns and briars are cursed. That is, they are judged. And so he's calling them. He's saying, your condition is perilous. You're on the verge of turning back. If you turn back, there is no way back. And more importantly, you will face the judgment of God because you are barren and unfruitful. But thanks be to God, the passage does not end there. There's a warning against apostasy. And secondly, you will notice in verse 9 and 10 that there is an assurance of better things for believers. So the writer in verse 9 has an important but. He says, don't go back because there is no way back for those who abandon the faith. But in verse 9 he says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. He says, I have warned you seriously about apostasy. But in my heart, I am convinced of better things that you will not apostatize. I am convinced of better things for you that you will not turn aside and face the fiery judgment of God. And so the question then is operative. Why is the writer so convinced that they're not going to fall away? It is found in this little term that is used. But beloved... You see, these to whom he speaks ultimately are God's beloved. 
This is the only time in the book of Hebrews that the writer calls Christians beloved. But he points to the reality that they are loved of God. Later on, he will tell them that those whom God loves, he chastises. But he reminds them that they are beloved of God. That God has placed his eternal and discriminating love upon them. Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Things concerning or related to salvation. He's convinced that they will not apostatize because he recognized that God has chosen them, set them apart for himself, placed his love upon them, and those whom God loves, he can never lose. But there's a second reason why he's so confident. Why he's so confident of better things, and the better things here refer to salvation. Why he's so convinced of better things? It is because they bear the mark of genuine Christians. So in verse 10, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. You know, the, the book of Hebrews reveals several marks, in fact, many marks that belong to those who are saints or belong to God, Christians. He tells us that Christians, for instance, in chapter 2, verse 11, are being sanctified. The law is written on their hearts in chapter 8, verse 10. Their consciences are, cle are cleansed in chapter 9, verse 14. God is pleased with them in chapter 11, verse 5. In chapter 10, 23, they're characterized by hope. All of these are characteristics of those who are genuinely saved. But in verse 10, he points to another distinguishing quality of genuine believers. For God is not unfair. God is not unjust. To forget your work and your labor of love which you have shown towards his name. How did he know that these people are God's own? That they will not turn aside and forever apostatize? It is because, you see, they are characterized by love. See, they are God's beloved. They have received God's love. And the love of God has produced within them a love for God. Notice, it is not merely that they loved mankind in general, but it is a love for the name of God. That is the distinguishing mark of a saint of God, is that that individual loves the name of God. He loves the honor and the glory of God. You see, we who are saved are delivered from self-love, to love God and to seek to exalt his reputation. And these believers here in perhaps Rome to which the epistle was written, even though they were vacillating and even though they were at a crossroad, they fundamentally revealed that they were caught up with God. They loved his name. They loved his honor. They wanted to please and to glorify him. That's the mark of a Christian because we seek to glorify not self but God. And how did they demonstrate the love for the honor of God? They did so by serving other Christians in the past. And even at the present, when he writes, he says that they are still serving one another. So he says, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name. And how do you show love to his name? In that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. It is precisely then, because these are God's beloved and are demonstrating love for God and his glory by loving his people.
that he tells them his desire for them in verses 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you, you who are loved of God, you who are serving God's honor and glory by loving your brothers, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promise. He's yearning that they would not be lazy Christians, but diligent Christians who are laboring to arrive at an assured hope, an unwavering faith, and a patient endurance, that they would continue in the example of the great stalwarts of the faith, like Abraham, who endured in faith and in hope and in obedience unto the end and then received the promise of God. So there's a warning. Be careful of, of, of apostasy because if you apostatize, there's no way back and you reveal that you do not belong to God in the first place. But he says, I'm convinced that you are not going to apostatize because you're loved of God and because you have demonstrated love for his name. A runner years ago entered into a grueling marathon and he arrived at the finishing line several hours after the race was over. And a young man who was there, wandering about, came over to him as he lay on the ground, panting. And he said to him, you deserve to be in the Guinness Book of Records. The man said to him, why? The runner said to him, why? He says, well, you must be the slowest runner of a marathon in history. There must be a place in the Guinness Book of Records for you. And he said to the man, the runner on the floor, why didn't you quit long ago? There's no price for coming last. Why didn't you turn back? And the runner between pants of breath said to him, because the road I ran is the same road that leads me home. There's nowhere else for me to go because this road is a road that leads to my home. You and I as believers are in a Christian race. And we are going to be tempted and encouraged to quit and to turn back. But the road that we travel, this road in following Jesus, in being a disciple of Christ, is a road that leads to home. And there is nowhere else that we can go. Because we are on our way home. So these scriptures remind us that it is he who endures in this race to the end who will be saved. The Christian life is not for quitters. Once you enter this race, you must see it through. And even though this race is characterized by hardship and by difficulties, it is he who endures to the end who will be saved. There's no quitting, there's no turning back. My dear friends, perseverance is the only antidote to apostasy. How do you, how do you en ensure and safeguard against turning back? You must keep pressing ahead. It's the only remedy for turning aside. It is not even standing in neutral. Because the writer makes it clear that if you don't go forward, you will go backward. There is no neutrality, as I mentioned last time around. So you must persevere to the end. But as you persevere... Know that God will ensure that you persevere to the end because you are loved by God. That is, his love will ensure and guarantee your perseverance. The writer says, beloved, 
I am convinced, we are convinced of better things concerning you. You are loved. You see, we who are believers are loved by God. And God's love is not mercenary. His love is not merely to draw things out from us. His love is self-giving and sacrificial. God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, this is not mercenary love. This is sacrificial self-giving. How does God prove love? He gave it to us in Jesus Christ, who took our sins upon the cross, who bore our sins. You see, his love is neither mercenary nor mercurial. Human love, it seems, goes up and down. We fall in it and we fall out of it as quickly as we do. But God's love is steady. It's not mercurial. It is not inconsistent. It is unmoved even by the wildness of our own hearts and by our inconstant spirits. It is steady and abundant. It is consistent to the end. And the writer tells them, Beloved, we are convinced of better things. How do you know that you will endure? Because God loves you. And he will cause you to persevere. You see, this God has planned better things for you. It is a Danish philosopher, Kierkegaard, who tells a story of a goose, really, accurately, a gander. The male goose is a gander. But since we don't use the term often, it's not very familiar. Let's stick with goose for the time being. And so, Kierkegaard talks about a, a goose that was wounded. And it fell in a barnyard full of chickens. And the goose spent time, healed, played with the chicken, ate with the chicken. And after time, the goose began to think of itself as a chicken. And then one day, a flock of geese flew overhead. And one of them honked. And the goose that was below among the chicken heard the honking on the sky. And Kierkegaard said something in the goose below stirred. The cry from above stirred him. And he began to flap his wings, wings that he had not used for a long time. But after flapping his wing for a little while, he dropped back to the ground among the chickens. He heard the call from above, but he settled for less. And many of us settle for less. We want to dabble in a little sin here to get a little pleasure there. We make relationship the idols of our lives. We will abandon our Christian convictions because we want to go out with an unbelieving girl or boy. We will work around the clock because we want more money. We want a house and a car and we want the two children and the joys of family. And so we will compromise on our Christian faith. We will settle for less. But the book of Hebrews teaches us that God has better things in store for us. That whatever you can envision for yourself, God has better. In fact, the Bible tells us this, and Hebrews teaches us that Jesus Christ is better. 
We are told that the blood of Christ speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. And whatever you desire, whatever you seek, God has better for you. How do you know that you will endure? Because he loves you and has planned better for you. And you may be in a hard spot. You may be in a tight place today. You may think there is no hope and there is no way. But God has better for you. He says, I am convinced of better things. God will indeed lead you out. He will deliver you. And the better things is not necessarily more money, but eternal life. And he has planned this for you. He has planned eternal life. And he says that those who are his, he will never lose from his hands. You see, God has not only planned better things, but he's keeping you for better things. He will preserve you to the end. What do you read in Romans 8, 35 to 39? Give me a moment to read this magnificent text. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, you see, of the better thing. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God has not only planned better things for us, he's keeping us for better things. He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. He's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his throne with exceeding joy. You see, perseverance is a gift of God. You you don't persevere because you want to persevere. You persevere because God perseveres with you. God preserves you. And so you need to know that God has planned better things, salvation for you. And he's keeping you for that salvation. And he will never let go of you. But you need to also know, as I conclude, that though perseverance is the gift of God because it is God who perseveres with us, perseverance requires the use of means. We need to understand this. We may question how the writer tells Christians who cannot turn back, don't turn back and keep going. Because if you turn back, it leads to apostasy. You may say, well, how does it happen? You can't turn back. Why is he saying don't turn back? Well, it is because God does use means to keep us pressing on. And one of the means he uses is warnings. How do I know that God uses means? Well, just have to look at Scripture. Scripture teaches that God chose us to be saved. He chose us in eternity. But he also uses the means of the gospel. You know, God, God could have saved every person he wants to save without scripture, without the gospel. But he uses the means of the gospel. God promises to meet all our needs according to his riches and glory. But he also ordains that the means by which we receive his riches is by prayer. God promises that he will protect us to the end. But he tells us that we must use the means of watching and praying. And so even though you and I are called to persevere, it means that we are to persevere in faith. We are to persevere in hope. We are to persevere in patience, 
depending upon the means of grace. We must persevere first and foremost because we have a love for Christ and a love for His glory. We must persevere because we have seen what He has done for us and we will never let go of Him. But because He holds us on, because He has His grip on us, we must run this race looking to Him. We must use the means of prayer. We must use the means of Scripture. We must study the Word of God. We must be found in the house of God when there is Bible study and prayer meeting and when there is worship because we are using all the means of grace, prayer, Scripture, gathering together for worship and prayer. We're doing all of this using the means of grace that we may press on. And how do we press on? We press on by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, who is the epitome, who is the high watermark of perseverance. You see, because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. If you want to know endurance, you must look to Christ who endured suffering on the cross. Because it is this Christ who gives us the power and the desire to endure. May God grant you that in a world of great compromise and backslidings, and ultimately in a world of apostasy, that you will keep your eyes fixed on the cross and fixed on Jesus, who persevered through suffering and inherited glory. Never look back. Never go back. Because the way that you travel leads you home, for Jesus' sake. Amen. My friends, we're going to come to God. Let us pray. Our Father, how we thank you that you found us in our sins. And you did not leave us, but you called us. You enlightened us. You you gave us a knowledge of yourself. You gave us a taste of the life to come. You made us partakers of the Holy Spirit. You, You have saved us. And we pray that you may cause us to block our ears to the siren call of the world. That all that the world offers, all of its pleasures, we will turn away and see in Christ that there is better in him. And that he has better planned for us. And so we pray, Spirit of God, empower us and enable us. That we may run this race. Not slacking. Not lazily but diligently and avidly pursue you, seeking to grow to know you more and to be more like you. Oh God, we pray, help us not to make shipwreck of the faith. May it be that those of us who are on this course today will be found on that course when you call us home. So sanctify this word to us, we pray. Lift our spirits, help us to be unflagging, help us to be fervent in seeking to do your will and to follow your ways. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.